Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And so as we move into 1942, it gets, it gets really interesting. So before we come back to the, the home front here, I'll just quickly discuss what's going on in, in the context of the war. So... We go past the invasion of Singapore. We then look at the fall of the Dutch East Indies. And by the middle of 1942, Japan is on the doorstep of Australia. They've rocked up in northern New Guinea. And again, fear of an invasion is at an all-time high. Now, there's a couple of things that kind of turn them around. The first is the Battle of the Coral Sea. It's an interesting one because Japan actually deals more blows to America than America deals to Japan. In fact, in the sense that Japan sinks an American aircraft carrier and America doesn't sink a Japanese aircraft carrier. But it's considered a strategic victory for America because Japan gets stopped in, and they, that's where they get stopped in their advance. Hmm. We then kind of have another really key battle, which is the Battle of Midway. There was a movie made about it a couple of years ago with Woody Harrelson. Midway is a really interesting one because it's effectively America cracks the Japanese code. And they've got an awareness that Japan is going to attack somewhere. It's called AF. Oh, it's in like their own like Enigma code. Yeah, their own okay. Enigma yeah, code. Yeah, right. Imitation game. Mm. Yeah, it's effectively the American imitation game. Great film. So they crack, they crack Enigma and they're like, well, Japanese Enigma. <laughs> and they're like, okay, they're going to attack AF. We don't know what AF is though. So what mm. they do is they are like, we're pretty sure Japan has like has intercepted our messages what we'll do is we'll, we'll throw some bait and let's just see what happens. Um, and basically they say, like, something to the effect of, like, oil needs replacing at Midway. And then they kind of look at the Japanese encoding system and it's like, uh, oil needs replacing at AF. They're like, oh, here we go. Oh, we're on. And so basically America's got a huge decision to make. Um, so, so Chester Nimitz, the admiral who's overseeing that part of the Pacific, is like, do we act on that or do we not? Could the Japanese be baiting us? Hmm. And so this is this, it's this huge decision. A lot of people in the American military are incredibly skeptical of code breaking because it's a pretty new science. And a lot of them think Japan's actually setting them up. Nimitz makes a pretty bold decision. And he actually, what he does is he lets Japan attack Midway and then he comes and encircles Japan. So Japan's strategy with taking over the island of Midway is to bait American forces to leave from Pearl Harbor to defend Midway in which Japan will encircle them and wipe out their fleet. America goes, why don't we pretend as though we don't know Japan's going to do that, let Japan attack midway, and let the encircling force come, and then we encircle the oh. encircling force. And what happens in, in the Battle of Midway, it's crazy, is effectively, within a couple of minutes, three of their four aircraft carriers get sunk. Your aircraft carriers... The Japanese Yeah, it's, it's effectively everything. And then later, the final aircraft carrier gets sunk. 
So at that point, what happens is a lot of the good Japanese pilots are killed in the battle as well, which means they then have to start thinking about resorting to other methods like kamikaze. And from that point onwards, the Japanese are turned around in in the Pacific. They're also turned around at Guadalcanal, so that's in the Solomon Islands, and so they're turned around there as well. And so by the middle of 1942, fear of an invasion is going down a lot as it's like, okay, we're finally getting some breathing room here. A couple of consecutive Japanese defeats has put us in a pretty good position. But there's another big issue. So what happens is we have... Have you heard of the Rats of Tobruk? I have. I can't remember a whole lot about them. Basically, Australian Middle Eastern divisions who are fighting off Rommel in Africa and also fighting against the Italians in Africa as well. Mm-hmm. Curtin's like, okay... We need to withdraw these troops and have them for self-defense. We can't have them fighting in Africa when we we need every soldier defending Australia right now. And so what Curtin does is Curtin withdraws them from Africa and is has them cross the Indian Ocean with the um, goal of defending Australia. Churchill pops up at that moment. Good old Churchill. Hmm. You and- up? You up, X? <laughs> <laughs> well, funny you say that. He's like... Like, basically says, come defend Burma, question mark. <laughs> and Curtin doesn't respond to him. Curtin leaves him on red. And so Churchill says, no news is good news. And he actually then orders the Australian, one of those Australian divisions at least, to go and go towards Burma, even though Curtin didn't give him approval. Curtin is furious when he finds out about this. And Curtin mm. is like... What the heck? We need the. We are literally dealing with self-defense here. We could be invaded by Japan, early 1942, and Churchill's like, but, but India, the crown jewel of the empire. Mm. And he's like, I don't care about you, bloody <laughs> empire. We have to. Our nation could be invaded right now, and so he overrules Churchill, and um, and it's basically they have a huge falling out over that. So Curtin, uh, Curtin redirects them towards Australia. Churchill does basically this broadcast that kind of blames. Australia once again. He was like, basically, like Australia's not pulling their weight in in the war. You have no desire to kind of protect the Commonwealth or like that sort of thing. And so Curtin and, and Churchill have a huge falling out, which only drives Curtin further towards America. Hmm. Interestingly, he only has one meeting with Franklin Roosevelt. The reason why is that John Curtin is afraid of flying. Oh, wow. And to be on a naval ship would just take too long yeah. during the course of war, also too risky. So he's really afraid of flying. And apparently, according to all accounts and according to his diaries, he actually couldn't sleep while the Australian soldiers were crossing the Indian Ocean, coming back to Australia. He was just too scared that they'd get sunk abroad. Mm. And again, um, these sort of things would often make him prone to what was called at the time a depressive episode. And typically that was characterised by him isolating himself. By, ni- by the 1940s, it wasn't... Out- we, assume- we-, we assume that alcohol wasn't too heavily involved, whereas in the 30s it was. Um, but he did end up in hospital for a condition called gastritis. That's inflammation of the stomach caused by either stress or alcohol. By the 40s, we're going to assume it's stress. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's having a very real effect on his body, um, kind of the stress of the situation of being in war. Yet, he's doing his job incredibly well, putting the middle finger up to, to Churchill and effectively kind of making a lot of independent decisions for Australia, which 
Menzies tried to, but he couldn't do effectively. But it's coming at a huge cost to his personal health and he's deteriorating mm. rapidly throughout the war. This brings us to the home front. Mm. So, John Curtin's great power is he couldn't fight, obviously he couldn't fight in a war, but right? he was going on like late 50s by this point, never going to fight in the war. It still put his body on the line in terms of like the kind of stress of the war that that was kind of having on his body. His power was in kind of galvanising Australians to make sacrifices on the home front. If COVID were to happen this year, I'm sorry, Albert, I love you. I don't think Albert would have a chance in actually being able to enforce a lockdown again. Mm. Yeah, there'd be there'd just be too much there'd be just too much uproar, too much outrage, mm. and so to actually persuade people into making sacrifices, you've got to have a careful balance of, of kind of carrot and the stick, and you actually have to consistently um, persuade people that this is a worthy sacrifice to make. And that becomes much, much more difficult even af- like after 1942 when it becomes more apparent that Japan won't invade Australia. Yeah. It's still three years of the war after 1942. Hmm. So Curtin basically has to consistently make pretty, pretty inspirational speeches. And again, we've lost the art of rhetoric. It was an incredible orator and Curtin would have to constantly persuade Australia that this was a worthy, worthy sacrifice to make consistently. A couple of things that he did. Number one, he fixed wages. So basically put both a minimum and a maximum wage in at the same time. So in whatever your job, like for each industry, they'd kind of have their own mandatary wage. Hmm. He fixed rent. Kind of, kind of like our FIFA price ranges, you know, yeah. sort, of similar, sort of similar sort of impact. On <laughs> don't say about the time I tried to price fix a random Dutch silver player with my mates in high school. So we bought up the entire supply of a guy called John Goosens. Shout out to whoever he is. And then we tried to bump him up to like, he cost about what, maybe 800 coins. Try to price fix him at 60,000 coins. Like this, this will work because we control, <laughs> we control the supply. We control the demand. We thought we were like mad economists and then no one bought him. <laughs> yeah. That ultimate team market is actually crazy. Though. Like- <laughs> well, could the completely unregulated one. Yeah. It's like yeah. it's the FIFA 14 market. It that's like Ben Shapiro. FIFA turning 14 into like obviously real money. And yeah. The FIFA 14 market was like Ben Shapiro's dream <laughs> of like an unregulated free market. And now, yeah, it's like it's like a European controlled economy. The shackles are on. <laughs> and yeah, basically, that's a great. I, I use. I use Ultimate Team in the classroom all the time to try and explain, like, economic history. Mm. Curtin's done a modern... Curtin has put the shackles on the economy Mm. during the war. He gave a guarantee to farmers that he would buy anything that they... Well, not him personally, but the government would buy anything that they produced. So the theory is to incentivize them to grow more because they don't even have to bother trying to go to the farmer's markets or whatever. Um, Anything that they grew, the government would just buy off them for a pre-negotiated price. Mm Mm-hmm did cause a decline in quality because you then can make just a huge profit by yeah, having as yes. many corns on the cobs as possible. But it Curtin basically does that to try and incentivize the production of grain. He, and this is Menzies as well that did this. So in 1939, there were two gun factories. In 1943, there's 32. Hmm. And he introduces industrial conscription. So you can be conscripted to work in the gun factories. Okay. I like that type of conscription a little more. (laughs) (laughs) 
if you were to have conscription today just for like a, a random sector, if like a national service in one particular field, mm. what would you introduce conscription for? I'm thinking of like, um, like you know, in, prim- in primary school, right? You get conscripted to like pick up rubbish. Yeah. Know? Like maybe a clean up Australia conscription. I like that. Um, I've been conscripted actually. I'm, I'm going to jury duty tomorrow. <laughs> oh, huge. <laughs> so yeah, I've been conscripted for my, my civil duty to uphold the law. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. How did that one slip through the... I guess we probably can't talk about it in too much detail. For There's not much detail to be talked about. I just got a letter saying to turn up to, to Downing Street tomorrow and that's wow. what I'm going to do. That's no, Not Downing Street, Downing Centre on Liverpool Street. Yeah. Yeah, we, we'll try and avoid getting you done for contempt of court by <laughs> elaborating on any more. That's all I know. Mm. I work, got... Work in the supermarket, six-week Euro trip. Those be good things. <laughs> <laughs> we will pay you for your continued tour, your service to the nation. I got last year. I opened the mail and saw I got a two thousand two hundred dollar fine. Um, it was for missing jury duty. It's like, look, I am known to miss key life admin <laughs> dates. It is believable. I have and I've moved address like a couple of times hmm. in the course of of that financial year. And so I was like, okay. This is believable. This is entirely possible. I have never seen a jury 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 duty letter in my life, and so basically, like two thousand two hundred dollars is, is that's a lot. Is, is a lot of money, right? Um, not for us if we kind of up our patreons. Um, so yeah, you can help <laughs> us not make that a lot of money by by doing that. But I <laughs> I put in I put in like a dispute, and yeah, like kind of like six weeks later. Um, and I, yeah, we had to we had to properly budget for losing two thousand two hundred dollars in our like in mm, our budget. Yeah, and I just get a I get this like text back being like, oh yeah, it was a mistake, wrong cam like wrong camera, Mitchell. Sorry, that was it. <laughs> oh my gosh, That's you just got robo <laughs> <laughs> Oh, say, so, yeah, you, you could have just paid it. And they, no one would. I, I was like, question. knowing me, like I'm like I'm a very much a time as money guy. I'm mm. like a look. I'll, yeah, just, like, I'll just cop the money so I don't have to deal with the logistical frustration. Yeah. So I can put more money. In, yeah, yeah. Put more time to videos. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so I like if it was if it was like under a thousand dollars, I would have just paid it. I reckon because mm. I just didn't want to deal with the nuisance of. But I, I did put in the dispute, and yeah, sometimes you do win if you get your parking. If you got a parking ticket right now. I know they tell you you never win your parking ticket disputes. I do have a victory story for you. If you <laughs> <laughs> and so speaking of victory stories, 1943, the election rolls round and it's Curtin versus Billy Hughes. Labor trounced the UAP, 49 to 23. And so what used to be a hung parliament is now very much pro-Labor. And that actually frees Curtin up to do a lot of things because Curtin doesn't have to worry about bringing the independents on side. He doesn't have to worry about annoying them anymore because everyone just backs Curtin. And so they win in 1943. Billy Hughes gets dumped as the UAP leader. Any guesses who becomes the new UAP leader throughout the war? Harold. (laughs) (laughs) We've discussed his disappearance. (laughs) Have we discussed his appearance? It's not Harold. Robert Menzies. It is Robert Menzies. So the the UAP just goes through a cycle of Mm. Stanley Bruce... 
Billy Hughes, Robert Menzies, repeat. Stanley Bruce, Philip Hughes. Uh, oh, jeez. Um, Stanley Bruce. <laughs> Rest in peace. Um, yeah, Billy Hughes, Robert Menzies, repeat. And so, Dave Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's on constant cycle there, and Robert Menzies comes back, and obviously later down the track he'll become very important. We do need to discuss the end of the war. The common perception is that America bailed out, America stopped Australia from getting invaded in World War II. That's partially true. <laughs> Because when you look at Midway and you look at the Coral Sea and you look at Guadalcanal, that is primarily American involvement that halts Japan in the Pacific. What they don't talk about is Kokoda. Hmm. Now, we have done the Kokoda track <laughs> at Concord. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember your year six excursions at the Kokoda track? Yeah, I, I remember it. I remember it fairly well. Uh, yeah. there's, a, there's a memorial specifically for Kokoda at Concord Hospital. I can hardly remember anything from the excursion, but for some reason, my key takeaway was from the whole day was there was a bunch of guys. So there was like a park next to it and there was a bunch of guys, like office workers just playing like lunchtime football. And it like totally shifted my perception of like what full-time work looked like. I'm like, they just play soccer at lunch like us. <laughs> like, what? On it? This is what? Dad never, Dad never told me about this. <laughs> like, and for some reason, that is the key takeaway from my Concord. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, this is what they sacrificed for. Like, yeah. this is the Australia that. Yeah, maybe, maybe I stood there and looked out and thought, yeah, this is. They walked so we could run. <laughs> um, but yeah, aside from that, I yeah do just remember walking around this little trail and they would sort of like tell us things the sort of story of Kokoda along the way yeah I remember we we split off into small groups and uh we had we were very fortunate we had a a World War II veteran take us around which was incredibly insightful right and we were in very quite small groups I thought I feel like it was less than 10 and we had a we had our teacher in our group but the the veteran when referring, can I? Yeah, you to, yeah, yeah, you're allowed to quote it. Yeah, yeah. Veteran, when uh, referring to the the Japanese, he would refer to them as as Japs, basically. Hmm. And we were told in our classroom prior to that that we weren't allowed to call them that. Hmm. We weren't allowed to refer to them as that. So. I don't know if someone's kind of like looked to the teacher because he said it multiple times and our teacher basically (laughs) had to try and concoct some sort of reason. He's like, oh, if you, if you fought them, it's okay to call them that. (laughs) (laughs) They get the pass. (laughs) They get the pass, yeah. (laughs) Um, Which of course is understandable that um, if someone, a, a, a nation that you'd been to war against that you wouldn't necessarily have too much of a, a fondness for right hmm. um even if it was a long time ago but um does that mean yeah, we, it was we can call it kung flu but more future generations can't <laughs> <laughs> you're asking the I right would, questions I, <laughs> I would say we can't call it kung <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i remember you telling so he didn't so your teacher didn't intervene i mean I, my understanding was that yeah, yeah. he course, was like and that would have been I think disrespectful to then go like actually can you yeah yeah totally calling them that it's like yeah you've watched these Japanese people kill probably likely some people that he knew and it's like 
I think we can afford him a little bit of a <laughs> derogatory <laughs> name. Like every yeah. <laughs> it's not like, I don't know, maybe it does have some more uh, negative connotations than I'm aware, but in my mind, it's just like short for Japanese. Yeah. Well, it is, well. but they're like, they're using it in a way at a time when they hated the Japanese. Yeah. Right? So, so it's like, got the connotation of like, yeah, okay. like, yeah. I see, I see. Bloody Japs. See. As in, could, but we it. wouldn't see them as Japs now because we haven't, like, we have no reason to kind of hate the Japanese. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They gave they gave us Nintendo. Like, <laughs> <what>? <laughs> Your DS just here. <laughs> I did come in. So we are recording this in PY's bunker. I did come into the bunker with PY's passport on the table. <laughs> um, him watching... Mishmash highlights while playing Nintendo DS. <laughs> like this, this is Australia. This is <laughs> just another Sunday morning. <laughs> My dad also walked has walked the Kokoda Trail. Oh, I'd wow. be keen to, I'd be very keen to to, to do it yeah. as a they, if, if patrons want to support <laughs> us. <laughs> I've, no, I've, I have been very keen to do it. Yeah, it, it takes a takes a while. Two weeks, I think it does. Two weeks, yeah. yeah. I know wow. they. Um, in the same way, like in the test series, how before the cricket, before the World Cup, they took them to the Western Front and then before the Ashes, they took them to Gallipoli to like, you know, this is what you're playing cricket for. <laughs> and I think they do that. A lot of the, some of the rugby league teams, maybe not the first team, but their their junior teams, they'll get them over to do the Kokoda track for pre-season or something. So for state of origin, do they take him to like the Eureka Stockade? Was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when I was at the kind of Concord Concord trial, mm-hmm. um, what happened was it was like so. Basically, we've discussed this both on the Patreon and I think we even made it the main. I'd have to I podcast. Might, I'll have to go there. I, I work quite close. Yeah. Mm. Well, when we went, we were in the era where footy cards had been banned. But what, like, yeah, improvise, adapt, overcome. What we did is we pivoted towards the kind of Sunday Telegraph footy cards that I were those big no, paper, yeah. those I'm, thick I'm, paper ones. I'm with you. They didn't, with they you. didn't flip very well. But this kind of whole new <laughs> ball game of of footy cards that opened up. Did you ever play the DS game Mascot Mania? I did not, but oh, I have heard. Word. Do you want to borrow it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I was. Well, I hate to kind of open myself up to criminal allegations here. I do have a chip that I can get it for free on if I oh. find my DS. Wow. So, uh, no, I am. I, I lost my DS a while ago. Also, my DS is broken because I sat in it while watching Wild Hogs. But <laughs> <laughs> sorry for another time. <laughs> I feel like you've told that story before, potentially on the, on air. Um, so, to come full circle, the Kokoda track. <laughs> track. Basically, the New Guinea campaign is really interesting. So, Port Moresby is, is at the very south of New Guinea. And actually, like, if you divide Papua New Guinea up, you've got Papua and New Guinea that are actually different territories. So, Port Moresby is at the very south of Papua New Guinea. In the very north, you've got a place called Buna. And you've got a place called Gona. That's where the Japanese are based. We are based in Port Moresby. What separates the, the two are mountains called the Owen Stanley Ranges. The Owen Stanley Range, I should say. So to get from one side to the other, you've got to cross those mountains. And it's not like snow-capped mountains, it's jungle mountains. So it's an incredibly mm-hmm. hard track to try and cross. Smack bang in the middle of that track is the town of Kokoda. That's why it's called the Kokoda Track. Mm. So... 
basically um, what happens is between the Japanese and between the Australians, it's a race to see, this is going on in 1942, by the way, it's a race to see who can get to the other side first, who can cross the, the mountains first. The Australians get ahead of the game. And the Australians get to Kokoda first and they keep on going until they meet the Japanese along the track. The Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels. They become important. Mm. So what happens is the the Anzacs are forced back. So the Japanese actually push the, the Australians past Kokoda and temporarily the Japanese get control of Kokoda. And they actually push them back towards Port Moresby. And what has to happen is the, the Anzacs retreat to Imata Ridge. So they, they take the high ground and the issue for the Japanese is they don't have good supply lanes. And so though the Japanese could advance, they couldn't actually supply those frontline soldiers very well. And add to that, the, the, the 39th Battalion, so the Australian group that fights, are incredibly resolute and in, are they're incredible soldiers. And so what happens is the 39th Battalion then pushes the Japanese back. So they, they go past Kokoda and rather than just take Kokoda, so rather than get the draw, they go for the dub. And they actually push the Japanese all the way back to the northern coast of Papua New Guinea. And they push them to uh, towns called Buna and Gona. Now, that guy that I mentioned before, Douglas MacArthur. So he was the one who evacuated, um, who basically what happened was he had a couple of hours to prepare the Philippines for an invasion. He didn't. So the Philippines gets conquered by Japan. There's a group that retreat to the Bataan Peninsula. To, so basically Philippines are islands and they basically retreat to a cliff face to try and fight off the Japanese and they do incredibly well to fight as long as they did. Eventually they get taken and are forced on something called the Bataan Death March. You might have heard of that before where basically it's their, it's a march to their POW camp and they, they kind of march to their death because um, they're forced to march in horrific conditions. MacArthur, he leaves the Philippines and he's like, I will return and kind of waves his American soldiers to their death. Now, fair enough, you don't want your, your key general to get captured. That makes sense. The I will return bit is a little bit like, firstly, the, now is not the time to develop your cult of personality. Hmm. Um, and secondly, what about something about your soldiers that are literally going to all, like a large chunk are going to get killed while you kind of wave yourself off as you kind of travel down to Australia? Kind of a kind, kind of a jerk move hmm. on MacArthur's part. Yeah. But I, I do understand that you don't want your key general getting captured. The issue for Douglas MacArthur is that he develops his cult of personality like no one else. And the American public starts to worship MacArthur as this key general who's fighting the good fight against the Japanese. Roosevelt hates him. And Roosevelt can't control MacArthur because people like him too much and he needs Roosevelt needs people's vote. So he can't actually oppose MacArthur in public, which gives MacArthur the power to kind of do whatever he wants because he knows what's Roosevelt going to do. And so MacArthur actually becomes a very difficult personality to manage. Curtin aligns himself with MacArthur for convenience, and that puts a wedge between him and Roosevelt. And in their one meeting, um, not much gets done. And actually, even though Curtin pivots towards America, he has issues with Roosevelt, and there's a lot of tension regarding their relationship with MacArthur. Mm-hmm. So MacArthur's basically, his title is Supreme Allied Commander of the South Pacific. And MacArthur, when the Australian soldiers have the Japanese on the doorstep of northern New Guinea, what MacArthur does is he takes them out. He's like, right, Americans are going to finish the job off. And 
what he's trying to do is he's trying to make it an American win rather than Australian than an Australian win. What a bum. When America plays the card of like, we rescued you in World War Two, hey, hey, that means you gotta do Iraq, Vietnam, like and you just kind of rattle off the war wars that we support America in because they helped us in World War Two. It's like, yeah, but you also kind of would were jerks to us. Mm. Like yeah, yeah. So what happens is the American soldiers aren't actually equipped for jungle warfare well enough. They can't finish the Japanese off, which means the Australians have to come back and finish the job off. And we kind of, yeah. What the heck? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we kind of, but we bail MacArthur out and MacArthur kind of parrots himself or kind of champions himself as, you know, I rescued, I rescued New Guinea. So no, you nearly stuffed it up. It was the Australians that basically did everything in that battle. Hmm. Like nothing makes me feel more patriotic than Churchill and MacArthur, how much they kind of screw us over in the course of the war. Um, So we wrestled back and took New Guinea. So whether or not America was there, given the way that we fought in New Guinea, I would like to think that that would make an invasion very difficult to do. And so we forced the Japanese back and eventually what happens is then we start pushing them left, right and centre. And that's where the Americans become far more useful than us. So we wrestle back control of New Guinea and the issue is, is like, because of conscription, we've got conscript forces in Australian New Guinea, but to the west is Dutch New Guinea. And so as soon as you go over that border, theoretically under the, under the old rules, conscript forces couldn't fight there. So 1943, that's when Curtin changes his kind of conscript rules to allow conscription in the South Pacific. And mm-hmm. so we push them back. And again, they're getting pushed back left, right and center. The Americans are using a strategy called island hopping, which is basically bypassing key uh, bypassing unnecessary islands to get to Japan quicker. Just, we're going to go to Mykonos and then we're going to go to Crate and then we're going to go to... <laughs> it's, like, it's not what I think of when I think of island hopping. <laughs> the Isle of Man. Um, shout out to... We've got one listener from the Isle of Man that did show up on the stats. So oh, nice. Shout out to... It, it was this independent country. I loved it. I remember... All I know of the Isle of Man was on Top Gear when they're like, there's no speed limits in the Isle of Man. And I'm like, what? Yeah, and it's bad. It's like no tax either. It's, it's an incredible tax haven. What? Yeah. Speaking of tax, hmm. where do we pay our taxes to? The ATO. The Australian Taxation Office. Yes. Kind of put our Cayman Island subsidiary accounts and our like <laughs> Virgin Island trusts aside. That's where we theoretically would be paying tax to. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a curtain reform. So if we go back to the beginning of Federation, it was the states who did tax. That was, uh, that was an absolute deal breaker for Federation was we want to retain as much independence as we can. We want to federate for national defence, but hmm. really we want we want to have independent control of our taxes. So the state government had control of taxes. World War One comes around and we introduce federal tax because we needed to kind of collectively control resources and we needed to make sure that everyone was pulling their weight in terms of getting money for the war, which left a situation where you had state and income tax. That's pretty messy. Hmm. So you got to pay, like it's Ben Shapiro's nightmare, right? You got to pay yeah. state tax and federal tax. Which is what they still have in America. They, they're all got very bizarre state tax. I think tax that's laws. right, yeah. Like it really, like, like in terms, I remember seeing it about like like NBA plays and like the discrepancies in how much tax they pay just based on what, what team, team they pay for. Like you want to go play in like in Dallas and stuff because there's just like tax rules are so different to playing in California. It's like. It's mental. Ah, so that's why Dirk Nowitzki was a <laughs> was a maverick. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, basically, it's a it's a messy system, and so Curtin decides in World War Two, he's like, "Sorry, states, 
we're like, it's been 40 years now. The Australian identity is pretty strong. We're in a war. You cannot be claiming income tax. We'll deal with tax and we'll give you money. Now, obviously, the state can still make a ton of money through things like licensing and like they've got their own money-making revenue Mm. streams, of course, but he takes over income tax. And that's actually a huge reform that is made during the course of the war. Throughout the end of the war, what happens is the Allies, they island hop throughout the kind of Southwest Pacific. They don't even really bother trying to liberate the Dutch East Indies. Um, The Dutch East Indies has huge, it had huge oil and rubber supplies. Like if we can just put a naval blockade on that, they can't, the Japanese can't get oil and rubber from the Dutch East Indies. Don't worry about invading, just put a naval blockade. Focus our attention on other islands. So you've got MacArthur coming from the south. You've got Chester Nimitz, the guy that I mentioned before. I prefer him so much more than MacArthur. He comes from the east. And so they take over islands like the Marianas and like kind of move closer by taking things like Saipan and that sort of thing. Um, And they get into pretty close proximity to Japan and they can start firebombing and strategic bombing. MacArthur comes from the south and he takes over the Philippines. Basically, um, this is how much of a jerk he is. So he delivered an address to the Filipino people and his address said, I have returned. Oh, Referencing. It's like the, the Michael Jordan returning to basketball <laughs> kind of thing. I'm back. But the interesting thing was his advisor said, hey, maybe it's kind of a team effort here. Maybe you can change it to we. And he was like, No. Wow. Um, there's an iconic photo of like MacArthur. So the boats disembark and he gets off the boat and he walks in the water with this like real strut with his aviators on. It's a really iconic photo. The context you need to know about that photo, if you have seen it, is that it was taken, I think maybe about like four or five hours after they landed in the Philippines. So they just did a reenactment for like, for propaganda purposes. And so eventually America takes control of the Philippines and with Nimitz taking the kind of islands that were more towards the east and with MacArthur advancing from the south, uh, they've basically, they're in a position where they can start bombing Japan. So they start, firstly, they do strategic bombing, which was getting rid of um, Japanese factories. So you bomb Japanese factories to crush their industrial capacity. Then you have fire bombing, which was particularly effective because Japanese houses are made of wood. So you just kind of mm. drop drop some fire and watch these Japanese cities burn up. The theory behind it was that would get Japan to surrender because it would put too much pressure on them. You could argue that it's just a war crime. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, like, big time. It, no, <laughs> not you could argue, it, 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 it is. Um, and so they're trying to pressure the Japanese people to surrender. They won't, the Japanese government's got them ready to go. So the Japanese soldiers, for an invasion, they were prepared by, have, they had to sharpen bamboo sticks ready to attack any American that came on site. They would not surrender on it under any circumstances. Hmm. In Saipan, Japanese civilians were told, rather than surrender to the Americans, jump to your death off a cliff, and they did. Jeez. So, again, this isn't even, that isn't even mainland... That isn't the four main islands of Japan. That's more distant Japanese territory, and they're still radicalised enough to do it. Wasn't yeah. there, like, a story of a... Japanese soldier found years yeah. after the war in the 1970s and he just didn't believe anyone they were like yeah the war's over it's reminds me of that like, family guy no no you're lying we would never surrender yeah it was, it was insane that, that family guy joke where Bush is ready to fight <laughs> is it Vietnam it's like 
sir, the, the, the war is over. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, seriously, yeah, they're, they're so radicalized that as late as the 1970s, they don't believe anyone when they're saying, no, 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 here's Hirohito, your emperor, like pleading for a surrender. Um, and yeah, they just, they're like, well, no, he wouldn't do that. And so, yeah, they're incredibly radicalized. And the context for the bomb is when we drop the atomic bomb, it's easy to take one of two extremes. Like, yes, it's a war crime by killing innocent civilians. Um, but the kind of right-wing argument is also kind of true in that, like, it did spare potentially more casualties because we forget just how prepared for an invasion Japan was. And Japan was not willing to surrender under any circumstances and that an invasion actually might have ended up killing both certainly more Americans, but a, a whole lot more Japanese as well. And so, like, that, that is certainly a valid point because Japan was ready pretty much under any circumstances. John Curtin, 1944. He has a heart attack. Oh, no. He survives. Hooray. So John Curtin, he survives his heart attack in 1944, but it's clear that his health is deteriorating really badly. Um, having seen MacArthur's antics, he gets pretty nervous about being so pro-America He's like, have we just traded one guy who doesn't respect us for another guy who doesn't respect us? And so mm. what he does is with New Zealand, they actually sign something called the Anzac Agreement, which was them trying to negotiate a kind of deal where they limited US influence to north of the equator. And it's just, that's a little detail that's forgotten about at the end of the war. We're often like, okay, Curtin pivoted towards America and we've been pro-America ever since. Actually, Curtin got a little bit suspicious and he started to actually, his conversations with Churchill got a lot better by the end of the war. And that was when he was realizing that he was starting to get screwed over a little bit by America. Six weeks before the end of the war, Kirshen has another heart attack and he dies. Oh, wow. So he didn't even, he didn't even get to enter the promised land, you know, no. he didn't get to see the end of it. Yeah. So bef- he doesn't live to see the Japanese surrender. He dies at age 60, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. The like kind of effect of a of an intensely stressful war, probably combined with his yeah earlier years being heavily under the bottle, uh, played a role as well. And one thing we need to kind of no conspiracy, no conspiracy. Okay. Yes, uh, but like not like the Joseph Lyons one. Mm. Um, one thing we need to remember when with John Curtin is when we're talking about his alcoholism, it was something he overcame. So 35 onwards, he's much, much less under the influence of alcohol. It does still have an effect on him later down the years, um, but it was something that he, that he did overcome. And at the same time, it was like he overcame it just in time to be the leader that Australia needed during World War II. Hmm. It's a true, it's, it's, I reckon it's a, like, again, I get that we don't want to create a cult of personality around anyone, but it's unbelievable that we don't know who he is. Like most like Australian students have no idea who John Curtin is. Mm. It's not taught. It's not really taught in history. But like that is an that is an incredibly kind of powerful story. Whether you kind of sit left or right on the kind of the political spectrum or whatever, um, a lot of the wartime stuff isn't a matter of left or isn't a matter of left or right. And actually, does a lot of right wing things like introduce conscription. Um, it's 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 a really incredible story of kind of the triumph of Australian leadership in that situation. So we'll come on to Ben Chifley next week and see mm. kind of what happens after the war. 
a guy called Frank Ford takes control for a very brief period until they kind of put in Ben Shifley as the main man. In, in terms of a final thing for how America treated us, our wartime effort, we kind of evaluated it at 28%. So we contributed to, we made 28% contribution to the fall of Japan and beating Japan. America gave us 8%. So we were responsible for 8% of Japan's defeat. I'd love to know the calculation of these. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes, the mathematician. (laughs) I would like, yeah, I'd love to know the process as well. Like combination of like lives lost, ships like. Yeah, like gains made. Yeah, exactly. Ships sunk. killed. Yeah, yeah. Industrial uh, capacity contributed to the war. Yeah. Um, So. America kind of put the middle finger up to Australia. And so when Ben Chifley comes in, it's really interesting because Chifley comes in as the prime minister and Japan's been defeated, but then he has to consider, okay, Japan's been defeated, but America's going into the Cold War. I'm a little less hesitant to go as gung-ho as America is into the Cold War. And I'm keen to kind of have positive talks with a lot of Asia and Asia's going to be the future of Australia. To avoid another Japan situation, we need to actually have good relations with our Asian native. Asian neighbours, but also I can't annoy the Americans because mm. that's how they treated us at the back end of the war. And so it's a really precarious situation. And then he's also on top of that, got to, he's like, okay, we need to build the nation up again. Like we've been devastated by this war and we kind of suffered depression, the Great Depression and World War II in quick succession. Now's the time for rebuilding. And so he actually begins his process of rebuilding the nation but it's going to end with Robert Menzies beating him. We'll have to find mm-hmm. out why next time. I look forward to it. Ben Shifley was always a always the Prime Minister I was most interested in because we shared a first name. <laughs> <laughs> I typed Ben's name out. I was sending a message um, to um, someone, and I've got a lot of Bens in my life, so I have to specify which Ben it is. And I went to type in Ben's name, and I got autocorrected to Ben Shapiro. <laughs> 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 But yes, it is It is going to be very interesting. It'll also mean we have some Bathurst chat. Oh. So get came for that. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, John Curtin, for all you did. Thank you, Robert Menzies, even though I've got my huge disagreements with Robert Menzies. Thank you, Robert Menzies, for your service during World War II as well. Um, it's a shame we don't know about their leadership during the wartime. And well, stuff... Lest we forget. Lest we forget. And stuff you, Winston Churchill. <laughs> and Douglas MacArthur. Even more so MacArthur. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y dot com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.